listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Listeners, welcome back to another episode of PTCE Pharmacy Connect. We're going to be digging a little deeper into some information that we've talked with before and welcoming back two of our stars of the PTCE Pharmacy Connect family. I'd like to welcome back Dr. Lara Bovoltz. Welcome back to PTC Pharmacy Connect. Lara, how are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And the one and only Dr. Victoria Nashar. Welcome back to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be back. I'm turning this over to Lara. Lara, you're going to lead us in today's conversation and really digging deeper into the conversation around emerging treatment landscapes of relapsed refractory diffused large B-cell lymphoma. Take it away, Lara. Thank you so much for being here. You got it. Thank you so much, Todd, for the very kind introduction. And when you think about treatments for relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell, oh my gosh, my head just wants to spin, right? Because there are so many new therapies. We have CAR T-cell therapies today, antibody drug conjugates, monoclonal antibodies, and wait, it doesn't stop there. There's even more drugs coming down the pipeline. So there's multiple T-cell engaging by specific antibodies under investigation today. So with all of these novel therapies that are current and emerging, I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk with Dr. Nishar about how do you optimize these therapies for our cancer patients? So really, I'd love to ask Dr. Nishar, are there differences in the patient populations in the clinical trials? So thinking about the LMIND, Lotus-2, Polituzumab, Vidone, and BR versus BR for these novel agents in relapsed refractory setting uh, for treatment selection? Yeah, that is a, the million dollar question. That's a great question, Laura. Um, there were differences in, in the patient populations in these studies at baseline. And, and you know, unfortunately, right now, um, we don't have head to head comparator data for these agents, right? So when we're trying to choose, you know, what might be the best for our patients, while it's really exciting to have all these options, it can make your head explode, you know, trying to figure out what is the best. And so often we look to, you know, who were the patients included in these studies and how does it apply to the patient that we're seeing in front of us? And so I think some things that come to mind for these novel agents when thinking about these patients were, you know, in the tafacitamide lenalidomide study, these were patients who had only received one to three prior lines of therapy. And they were transplant eligible patients. The median age was about 72 and primary reasons for transplant eligibility was age. Now, I don't know about, you know, your center, my center, we could debate, but, you know, if you have a fit patient with a performance status of zero to one, who's 70 or or younger, um, it's kind of confusing why age was a reason for transplant eligibility in the trial. 
nonetheless, these were, you know, not heavily pretreated, a little bit older population. They had never received prior CAR T cell therapy. So tefacitumab also targeting CD19, like our CAR T cell products. No one in this study had had prior CAR T cell therapy. And I, I want to mention that, you know, it did take about two months to see a response. So thinking about that, when we think about tefacitumab, lenalidomide, maybe it's not something that works quickly, but maybe it's a great option for a patient in the second line who's not a candidate for autologous stem cell transplant or CAR T cell therapy. In the polituzumab uh, vidotin study, um, again, primarily transplant eligible, but these are fit patients, right? They enroll in a clinical trial. And the reasons for transplant eligibility, again, age and comorbidities, it, it doesn't really make sense, uh, you know, who these patients are. And I will say, you know, this was a randomized phase two study, primary endpoint response rate, but there was a secondary endpoint of overall survival um, in which overall survival was significantly better, but this was not the primary endpoint of the study. And it probably was super under power to, to say that there was a difference. Um, and so, you know, patients in the, in the PBR uh, study uh, had had like two or more lines of therapy. So more heavily pretreated patients, again, no prior CAR T cell therapy. And then Lancastuximab was, I would say like a completely different patient population. They were three or more prior lines of therapy. Um, there was a good percentage, a small percentage of patients who had received CAR T or who went to CAR T after receiving Lancastuximab. Um, they also, uh, in the Lancastuximab trial, the LOTUS-2 included patients with very aggressive high-risk DLBCL, those with double-hit and triple-hit lymphoma. And so, you know, I think that these are really important to really tease out these characteristics, right? Because we've got a patient in front of us. We want to think about what is what is the best. And so there, there's totally differences in these patients. And again, um, I think when you take that into consideration, you can't say based on the outcomes, one is better than the other. That's always the toughest thing in our world of oncology pharmacy, right? How do you pick and how do you decide if one therapy is better than another? So I really love how you could tease out the data from the clinical trials with their enrollment and then apply it to patients in your clinic that age might not be the deciding factor, that line in the sand. So I really appreciate that vast knowledge that you have there. But it makes me wonder now, everyone's thinking about the CAR T-cell therapies, right? And when I was looking at this, it was scratching my head because I saw that only two out of the three CAR T-cell therapies in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, that's relapse refractory, had an event-free survival improvement in the second line setting. That was Axacel in the Zuma 7 trial and Lysacel in the Transform trial, but granted not FDA approved right now, but Tisacel actually did not improve event-free survival in the Belinda trial. Now, why do you think that might be? Because some might say, hey, these are amazing novel gene therapies. Shouldn't they all have great striking efficacy over standard of care? So why were possibly two therapies beneficial and one you're not as beneficial in the second line setting? That is, that's a huge, huge head scratcher. 
And I don't think we, we, you know, we know for sure, right? So they were, you know, Zuma 7, Transform, and Belinda were all very similar prospective randomized phase three trials in which, you know, their respective CAR T-cell product was compared to standard of care, which is salvage chemotherapy, and then an autologous stem cell transplant for patients who demonstrated sensitivity to chemotherapy. Now at baseline, these were high risk patients. So these were patients who were either refractory to first line chemotherapy or who progressed early within the first 12 months. And like you said, AxiCell and Lysocell both had an improvement in event-free survival and gained FDA approval for the second line setting, whereas Tisicel did not. Um, I think there are though, like some differences in these studies that may explain why Tisicel failed in the second line. they All of these studies had a different definition of what event-free survival was. And I think you could also nitpick if event-free survival was the right endpoint for these studies. Even progression-free survival may have been better. Ultimately, we want to see overall survival, right? Um, but in some of these studies, a stable disease was considered an event. And the time point at which they were assessing for stable disease was, was very different. And we know that Tisicel is one of the cartoon products that takes a little bit longer to work. And this is from the studies that were done in the third line settings. And so, you know, they were calling stable disease in a, an event very early on. And so you wonder if they had waited longer, um, would the EFS have been the same? Something that comes up all the time, right, with CAR T-cell therapy is like, getting a patient to CAR T-cell therapy. There's so much that goes into freezing and modifying the cells and getting them back. It can take days, days on end. Um, many patients with relapse refractory DOACL cannot wait that long, right? They can't wait 52 days, like in the Tisicel study, um, to receive product. And oftentimes they need therapy before, and we call this bridging therapy. And so in the studies, there were differences in bridging therapy that was offered and how many patients received bridging therapy. In the AxiCell study, they didn't the only bridging therapy that was allowed was corticosteroids. And corticosteroids can't hold many patients with uh, relapse refractory DOBCL. Um, in the uh, Tisicel study, so Belinda, 80% uh, or more of patients had bridging therapy. And even a percentage of those patients had two different chemotherapy regimens as bridging. So very heavily pretreated patient population, and then a high amount of bridging therapy in the lysocell study. So I think differences in who received bridging therapy um, could indicate that these were vastly different patient populations. And again, the time to, to the time to therapy, I would say realistically in our center, it takes at least four to six weeks, right? If we've got everything in place, insurance authorization, you know, we're getting those T cells, we're sending them off. In the XC cell study, it only took 14 days. And I don't really think that that's realistic and reflective of real world. So I think there are a lot of differences in these studies and you could say, you know, may, this may have been the reason why, you know, Tisicel did not have the improvement in event-free survival like the other two CAR T-cell products. Ultimately, you know, we don't know, um, but I think it's important, you know, to note these differences and, and think about which population may have been more reflective of real world. Absolutely, because these are real patients you're treating in the real world. And it does make it hard to apply this clinical trial results when the trials had and points defined differently, patient populations that were included that were so different, manufacturing processes that might not reflect the real world. Gosh, I don't know how you even do it. 
It makes my head spin. So it's a lot. Yeah. It is so much, but I bet you really want to optimize CAR T cell therapy, right? For patients that are eligible. So say for some reason, maybe the patient did not receive in the second line setting. Are you looking to utilize CAR T cell therapy then in the third line setting? Should they be fit for it? And if so, how do you pick in clinic amongst the three agents? Because there you have all three agents do have positive efficacy data, the ones that we talked about, Axacel, Lysacel, and Tisacel. So how do you choose? Yeah, it's, that's a really good good point and a good question. Um, you know, for patients who maybe relapse later, so two years after first line therapy, the standard of care is still, you know, give that patient salvage chemotherapy with a platinum based regimen. If they demonstrate a response, so chemosensitive disease, they should go to an autologous stem cell transplant. We know that that will cure a percentage of patients, but there's still going to be patients that relapse post autologous stem cell transplant or who maybe just aren't candidates for an autologous stem cell transplant, but they still may be fit enough for CAR T-cell therapy or relapsing post-transplant. I think a perfect situation in which you may go to CAR T-cell therapy at that point. And like you said, we have all three products FDA approved in that situation. And that was really the first approval for the CD19 CAR T-cell products in DLBCL. I think a little bit has to do with slot availability. Um, you know, these products, we get slots from the manufacturer if you're an institution. And so, you know, maybe it's not your preferred uh, for whatever reason, but if that's if you have a slot for it, you're going to take the slot. So a little bit of is, is just logistics. Um, there are some differences in the toxicity profile, and it really comes down to differences in the co-stimulatory domain of the CAR T cell product, whereas you know the CD28 uh, co-stimulatory domain of Axi cell um, may cause those T cells to replicate faster. They don't persist as long. Maybe you see more cytokine release syndrome versus the 41BB co-stimulatory domain. Don't see as high of toxicity, but it's really speculative. And I would say, at least at our institution, you're going to take whatever slots available, you know, to you to get that patient that product the fastest. That's wild. And I'm just curious. So I have to ask, I heard one oncology pharmacist said they only get one slot per product per month. And if that, they're even lucky to get that. So what do you tend to see for slot availability at your center? I, I think it it depends on the product and like the malignancy as well. For DLBC, I'd say we get we have more slots than that, um, but we kind of just you know go with whatever is available. Uh, I would say we get several slots uh, a month, um, but across all three products. Yep, that's great to hear. Great for our patients as well. We need to be able to expand access to those therapies. And then let's switch gears and talk about the exciting new therapies potentially on the horizon, right? So we have several CD20 bispecific antibodies in the pipeline. You have epcaritimab, glofitimab, and I'm going to stop right there because I'm going to mess up the rest of the drug names. <laughs> so if multiple of these CD20 bispecific antibodies are FDA approved in the coming future, what will be some potential considerations for therapy selection that pharmacists really need to know about? That it's such a good question. So many good questions today. It's going to depend upon, you know, what happens with the FDA approval for these agents. You know, are they going to have a risk 
evaluation mitigation system, a REMS program, probably from what we've been seeing from other bispecific antibodies. But what the exact components of that REMS program are going to be are unknown, right, until they're approved. They may require a hospitalization or a brief hospitalization or suggest a hospitalization. And so I think, you know, it'll depend upon each institution, what you're able to do, and then the differences in the recommendations for these products. And I think the recommendations are going to depend upon what flushes out when it comes to the toxicity of these drugs. So the bispecific antibodies, just like CAR T-cell therapy, have those same uh, immune effector cell associated toxicities, cytokine release syndrome, and neurotoxicity, or ICANs. Now, it's all cross-trial comparison. These, these are early trends, and I can't say definitively what we're going to see, but what we, we are at least seeing right now is that with the bispecific antibodies, the risk of CRS and neurotoxicity may be lower than with CAR T-cell therapy, and it, it looks to be less severe. The onset looks to be about the same, uh, but the duration of CRS and maybe neurotoxicity seems to be less with the bispecific antibodies than CAR T-cell therapy. So I think knowing this and some of the mitigation strategies that are going into mitigating a lot of these uh, cytokine release and neurotoxicity with the bispecific. So looking at ramp up dosing, starting at very low doses to try to mitigate that big cytokine burst. Um, Pre-medications, they're looking at giving these subcutaneously. So we're not going to get bolus doses through IV, hopefully decrease peak cytokine levels. Um, with some of that, I think we're going to be able to push these these agents to be administered at centers where CAR T-cell therapy is not available. So community centers, smaller hospital or cancer centers across the country, which is great, right? Because we're improving access for patients who right now maybe don't have access to CAR T-cell therapy. Um, their frequency is also you know, going to be unique in that some of these are weekly, some are twice weekly, once monthly, again, going to really depend upon the agent and what gets FDA approved. Um, but I think just thinking about if multiple, if and when multiple are approved in the same class, I'm thinking that each institution is going to have to take a look at all of these factors as, as long as there's no clear winner when it comes to efficacy or safety. And I don't think there's going to be because there's going to be no head-to-head -head comparator of them. But I'm just throwing some ideas out there, right, for the future to think about, should we pick a workhorse? Should we have a couple? Should we have all five of them, right, and have criteria for the patient? And so I think that's some other considerations when it comes to therapy selection for these bi-specifics that'll occur um, that we're not used to thinking about. I think it's really encouraging for patients to think that you might have all of those problems that are good problems to have about amongst deciding with many therapies, what to put on formulary and all the nuances, and then also how to expand access to care. Like you said, to potentially community hospitals, that would be fantastic for our patients. I would absolutely love that. But now talk to me a little bit about the toxicity since you already went into the CART and the bispecific antibodies. What about the toxicities of tafacitumab and lenalidomide, bolituzumab, lancastoxumab? What do you see there? Yeah, um, you know, we tend to focus on the the immune based side effects, you know, cytokine release and neurotoxicity. We don't see those toxicities with 
tafacitumab, polituzumab, longestuximab. So while these are novel immunotherapies are in the class of it, the toxicity profiles are actually vastly different. With tafacitumab, Alone, it's it's a monoclonal antibody, so it's pretty well tolerated. Um, there's a small risk of an infusion-related reaction. Um, but otherwise, a lot of the toxicity that we see with tafacitumab, uh, I guess you could say, comes from the partner drug. So tafacitumab is approved to be given in combination with lenalidomide, and that's because they seem to have a little bit of synergistic activity, whereas tafacitumab alone uh, did not have a good single-agent activity. We added lenalidomide. There's some immune stimulation happening there, um, and we see some durable responses with the combination. However, um, in the trial, the dose of lenalidomide was 25 milligrams. And in lymphoma, that is a really high dose. Most patients can't even tolerate 20 milligrams of lenalidomide in lymphoma. And so typically trials don't go above 20 milligrams, but here they gave 25. And so we see a lot of myelosuppression with the combination, rashes, increased thrombosis risk, particularly from your lenalidomide. So patients need to be on aspirin uh, prophylaxis, most commonly aspirin, um, diarrhea. And a lot of this is attributed to the lenalidomide portion. And so in practice, if we're using this, um, there's a lot of starting at lower doses and increasing as tolerated or starting at the higher dose of 20, 25. But often we have to back way down because patients just can't tolerate it, especially thinking the patients in that trial, median age, 72 um, not CAR T or auto transplant candidates. When it comes to polituzumab, uh, because uh, the payload is vidotin, which is a microtubule inhibitor, it causes peripheral neuropathy. And so we have to think about a patient's baseline peripheral neuropathy because we know that our CHOP causes peripheral neuropathy. They may be coming in with some baseline. Um, as well as polituzumab uh, is approved to be given in combination with bendamustine and rituximab right now. Bendamustine definitely increases your infection risk. We need to be giving PJP prophylaxis for these patients. You see your infusion reactions with, with rituximab. And then, you know, something to note that, you know, has been talked about before, but bendamustine extremely lymphodepleting. So if we're using it prior to collecting a patient's T cells for CAR T cell therapy, there's concern that bendamustine can negatively impact the those T cells. So we want to hold that, you know, before we collect the T cells for CAR T. And then longestuximab is unique. It's an antibody drug conjugate like polituzumab, but its payload tessering is, is an alkylating agent. And so it causes crosslinks in DNA. With longestuximab, we see uh, pleural effusions, peripheral edema, pericardial effusions. And so to mitigate this, the clinical trials implemented a, a steroid premedication. So it's saxamethasone twice a day, starting the day before the infusion, the day of, and the day after. And we see that the rate of peripheral edema, pericardial effusions, pleural effusions decreases significantly. So we need to make sure that patients are having getting those uh, steroid premedications. Now, the other thing with longestuximab is it causes photosensitivity, which you know, as pharmacists, we're used to hear, you know, hearing about or protect yourself from the sun. But with longestuximab, it is very, very severe, severe uh, photosensitivity, severe rashes, rashes that occur most commonly in those sun exposed areas, but that can occur despite being exposed to the sun as well. And this is to the point where the package insert manufacturer actually recommend patients protect their skin through glass. So like in the car window, right, which we're not used to seeing that severe of, of a 
skin toxicity from the sun. And so we're in Michigan, right? In the, you know, Michigan in December, you know, maybe this isn't, you know, it's as big of a deal. We don't have lots of sun, but if you live in Florida or California, right um, there, you know, you have to really educate patients and, and counsel them on this. And it may be a quality of life issue. And so while they don't cause CRS or, or neurotoxicity, they have their own unique toxicity pro profiles and they're very nuanced and they definitely come into, you know, th those treatment decision-making. That does sound nuanced. And yes, being a South Floridian, we like our convertibles or our sunroofs open. So holy moly, patients no. get custom to the sunscreen. Yeah, no convertible on the longest Texamab. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? <laughs> now you have to rethink your car choice with the cancer drugs. Oh, that man. is so wild. So some of these agents may cost more than a car or let's say multiple cars or maybe even a, more than a shiny sports car supercar. So I really have to go there because the financial toxicity of our cancer therapies is so real. If our patients can't afford the therapy, all these scientific advances that we have, all the great child data you just spoke about are really fruitless for our patients if they can't afford the therapy. Financial toxicity can put patients into bankruptcy, lead to poor outcomes, lower quality of life. They might have to borrow money from their family, might not be able to pay their bills. And just in this day and age when everything seems to cost more, I just couldn't imagine what our patients have to go through right now. My heart goes out to them, truly does. So I've got to go there. Talk to me about how costly these novel therapies are for relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So expensive. And it's hard, right, to put a dollar amount on benefit. And it's hard to put a dollar amount on, you know, prolonged survival or how much is a month of survival worth. We know that in several analyses, the total cost of CAR T cell therapy can exceed a million dollars per person. And when we're talking about all these advances and, you know, how great they are in improving access to care with the cost of these therapies has potential, I think, to bankrupt the system. And so it's it's so hard because they're great and they can improve survival for our patients. And that's ultimately what we want. We don't want to put, you know, financial strain on a patient to, you know, to do this. And the, the cost is unique in that we're used to just thinking about what the drug costs, right? This pill costs $20,000 a month. Um, my copay at the pharmacy for my blood pressure medication is $5 a month, right? But when it comes to these novel agents that are so complex logistically with hospitalization requirements, with monitoring, with the amount of visits, with the supportive care, with the cost of managing these unique toxicities of CAR-T and bispecifics like cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity, when you add all of those ancillary costs in, the, the cost is, is astronomical, right? Cost of an ICU admission, the cost of all the supportive care, uh, infection prophylaxis medications, the cost of gas to get to your appointments and put them, you know, the, the gas for your convertible to get to your appointment, right? Um, there are so many costs that don't can't be factored in. And so, you know, they're, they're really expensive. And, and I think well, the CAR T cell therapy is a one and done in theory, 
biospecifics are definitely these are an FDA approved deal. So we don't know costs and what that's going to look like. But I, I think some conversations are going to come down to an indefinite therapy and how costly it is versus, you know, a one and done CAR T cell therapy. Keeping in mind, though, that if you don't have access to one, then if that's the best therapy for you, we need to do what we can to mitigate the cost. Absolutely. So much to consider, and especially with your car choice. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so what about when these therapies move up to an earlier line of therapy, right? Like CAR T-cell therapy moved from third line or later to now second line or later diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. What if these therapies move to frontline setting? Talk to me about how costs may change in that type of scenario. Yeah, I think it's hard. And in, you know, with the re readout of the Polarix study, which moved polituzumab to the front line in combination with our uh, CHP instead of our uh, versus our CHOP, um, there's been some cost effective analyses. And I think cost effective analyses are hard to interpret because it, it really is extremely kind of subjective based on what data you put in and what, you know, what you factor in. And you can find some studies that say that you know, polituzumab in the front line may be cost effective if it can prevent more relapses. So if we're curing more patients, then less patients need these more costly therapies in the relapse refractory setting. And so perhaps spending more up front saves us more later. Um, but I don't think we know that yet for sure. We need a long time uh, follow-up to know that less patients are relapsing. But there are some cost-effective analyses that say that even if polituzumab improves survival and less patients relapse, it is still not cost-effective. So I guess my answer is I don't, I don't know. I think we might it's hard to know if we're saving costs or shifting costs. And we could potentially be over-treating some patients, right? Some of these, these studies that are done on the front line, they include just large buckets of patients. Maybe there, there are patients that do, you know, just fine with our CHOP alone and are cured of their disease that don't need the additional expensive agent. Um, so I think it's a little harder to, to figure out, you know, who exactly is benefiting? Are we over-treating some patients and then in the long run, it's not going to be cost effective, or are we really actually saving cost uh, in the relapse setting? Wow, there's so many considerations there. But with all that being said, talk to me about any strategies to reduce costs for these novel therapies. Is there any hope to help our patients with that risk of financial toxicity? I, I think there's opportunity. But we would have to get, you know, very creative. And so I think a lot of this is going to come down to agents that we maybe have been administering on in the inpatient setting or that maybe suggest a hospitalization. So think about those bi-specific antibodies. Can we shift those agents and the treatment of those patients into the outpatient setting? I think we all know, tail is all this time, any therapy giving outpatient, right, is the best way to do it from a cost perspective than take up that hospital bed. Um, however, if we're going to shift the cost outpatient and potentially save therapy, I think we we need to be able to do it safely. And it's a big role for pharmacists to come up with policies, procedures, working groups for their institution to figure out how we're going to give these things outpatient and how we're going to monitor for the toxicities and even manage the toxicities outpatient. Grade one and grade two cytokine release syndrome can be safely administered 
uh, can be managed, safely managed outpatient. Many places are, are doing it, but I think it's very logistically complex. You need you know, a way for a patient to quickly call you and tell you something's going on. You need them to be able to get to you quickly. You need space to be able to manage them outpatient and maybe not even through the emergency department, right? You need an infusion center or some, you know, intermediate level care to be able to give hydration and monitor them, maybe steroids, tocilizumab, and monitor them for a couple hours. Um, and, and I don't know if places are well-equipped and have the resources, right, to be able to do this. But I think if, if we can get creative and figure out how to shift and keep these people out of the uh, patients out of the hospital, then I think, you know, those are some strategies that are being examined to reduce the total cost of care. Absolutely. I can really respect that. I hope that we do see more outpatient administration of these therapies, especially CAR T-cell therapy going forward as people get more comfortable with it. Yeah, and I, and I will say that, you know, the bispecific antibodies, a lot of those clinical trials early on were doing a little bit more hospitalization than maybe they'll even get labeled for if and when FDA approved. But there are uh, studies ongoing for many of them. And there's some updates at the American Society of Hematology Conference next weekend looking at even full administration of those agents outpatient. They're, they're very early studies right now. Um, so, you know, I think uh, manufacturers are also looking at at how do we set up these community centers and other institutions for success when it comes to outpatient administration? I love it. And I could pick your brain all night long, Dr. Nushar, because you really have such a great grasp of the data and the knowledge in this area. But final question, if you're ready. What oh, yeah. Really Bring say? it on. <laughs> You got this, you got this. What would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in today about all of these novel immunotherapies being used in relapse refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma? Single most important, you know, takeaway? That's that's a loaded question. Uh, maybe I have a run-on sentence, but I, I guess I would say that, you know, there are many novel immunotherapies, CAR T-cell therapies, antibody drug content, gets monoclonal antibodies and then the bispecifics you know are not far away in relapse refractory dlbcl that are really improving outcomes for patients but i think there are many questions remaining when it comes to choice of therapy optimal sequencing and in in the absence of any slam dunk data telling us how to choose among these agents um i think a, a lot of variables come into play safety efficacy logistics and excitingly, these, these bispecific antibodies under investigation, I think, have opportunity to provide additional therapy options for patients, but also improve access to care for patients, uh, which I think is an important takeaway point for the listeners. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Nishar. You are brilliant, and it has been truly an honor to speak with you tonight. Um, Thank you so much. I had a I had a great time. Lara and Victoria, thank you so much for this information. This has been an absolute joy to be listening to pharmacists, educating pharmacists. And with that, we cannot wait to the next PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. 
go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.